Tefera Jemian, and you're listening to the No Bad Food Podcast. If you're new here, welcome. This is a show about great food and the people who love to make and eat it. Our mandate is simple, to explore, taste, and learn about food in ways that celebrate all the things that make it great. Every week we dig into a different dish, meal, ingredient, cuisine, or piece of food media, exploring the history and culture around it, sharing favorite recipes, and learning from our wonderful guests. The only rule? You gotta love it. After all, there's no such thing as bad food. Before we dig in, we'd like to take a minute to acknowledge that the studio where we're recording is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, it's important that we remember that the lands we occupy are not our own, and that we engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset. We encourage you to take some time today and every day to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and with the indigenous communities of that area. So my guest today is Shivani Metabatia. I have known Shivani since we were kids. I'm really excited to have her on. Shivani is a maker and a mender, a queer disabled brown femme, and an equity and justice consultant who works to nourish her communities and heal our systems of care in pursuit of health equity and racial disability and reproductive justice. Shivani, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy to be here, Tess. Thanks. Now, I've wanted to have you on this show for a really long time because you have a very interesting food culture, but you also have a really unique link to food through your work. Mm-hmm. Like, I think more than anybody else, like your your whole career has been like healer in various guises <laughs> in really like wholesome, nourishing ways that interact with bodies and food. And uh, so I'm just I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks. I'm I'm so thrilled to be here. And it's it's something that I like don't think about very often. And in part, I mean, like right before we started recording this, right? I was like, what even is my food history? Like what, <laughs> what is, how do I talk about food? Because it's like so foundational to everything that I don't even think about it that often anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that happens a lot of the time with a lot of people. And that's sort yeah. of why we have this show is to, yeah. to uncover that. So to get started, can you tell me a little bit about your food history as it is? Yeah. So I, when you first asked me this question, I like the first thing that popped into my head was, well, like aside from sheer panic was um, <laughs> this like very specific memory of sitting in my childhood home, like the, the home that we moved to when I was four years old, Mm -hmm. right after my sister was born. Um, And we had this little plastic like childhood, child-sized table with these like four little plastic chairs um, that we actually still have like 30 years later. My mom (laughs) uses that red plastic chair to like garden outside. So, you know, not biodegradable. (laughs) (laughs) Which is useful in gardening. (laughs) Yeah, still in use. Still in use. we had this very uh, small, narrow kind of kitchen and it had these like terracotta tiles that I remember my parents putting in when we first moved into this house. They were all a little bit uneven, but like really gorgeous orange um, and like rust kind of colored tiles. Um, and this little like white pantry and that was like just enough space for this tiny little plastic table to like sit right in front of um it was a yellow and blue table and the chairs were all red plastic and i remember um my sister and myself and two of our cousins uh, all kind of around the same age you know like in the five to ten range mm-hmm. sitting around this table and my mom was making fresh roti and like subji and serving it to us right there and that was like a thing that she loved to do was i'm gonna make you fresh fresh roti and like one at a time 
time as they would come off the stove or put on toast or whatever it was and putting them like really hot with fresh ghee and like putting them right on our, our plates to eat and there's this photo of the four of us just like fully covered in yogurt yeah. <laughs> like your fingers <laughs> um absolutely loving it so i think yeah, that's like the memory that that popped into my head. And it's also something that like we still do. Like we, mm-hmm. I, every so often my mom will still make parantas, um or pagodas or whatever. And like, but that like very fresh straight from the stove. Somehow she has like fingers of asbestos or whatever that she's putting <laughs> onto everyone's plates. Like, yeah, food is very much mm-hmm. a love language in, in our family. Um, yeah. And like in my food history. Too. I mean, yeah. my memories of your mom are all her cooking <laughs> just beautiful food exactly (laughs) yeah and there's like all of the very fraught gendered stuff that we could get into around that too because like obviously that is that is that's also very much a part of it for me but like in its most wholesome and pure Mm -hmm. as like a child in that space like that's very much what I what I remember and associate it with warmth and that's still like how I show up with my friends too like when I I love having people over I love feeding them I love hosting them (laughs) I love being like you need to eat this while it's hot please yeah Yeah. (laughs) I think I feel like at one point, maybe before I was on the show, but we had an episode where I was on as a guest with like a very similar conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Just like eat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about like how that developed as you've grown up. Like how has mm. your relationship with cooking and nourishing yeah. evolved? That's a good question. Um, part of it was that when I was a kid, um, because my mom was so like that was that was her love language and that was so much of what she like she wanted to do and and not just like on a you know off day it was very much like she showed up and would feed us yeah <laughs> um and that like is I, I don't mean that in a diminutive way I mean that like in a very expansive way um I didn't actually learn to cook for a pretty long time or like learn how to cook that well for a very Mm -hmm. long time. Like I could, you know, I could like make eggs, I could make pasta, I could like kind of do the, you know, basic sorts of, I could feed myself. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I didn't really learn how to cook Indian food and like my cultural stories around food for a very, very long time. Um, And a lot of that is also because so much of so much of this like is taught by watching. So I feel like I learned it by osmosis, but I never really like learned it, learned it. And I have this like f- I'm, like looking over my notes app. I have this like folder of <laughs> in my notes app that is just these very scribbled semi recipes that my mom or my aunt, uh, any of my aunts have given me of like you just you know do this until it tastes good or like yeah. I, I was I have I have one for making yogurt where my aunt texted me because I was really upset that my yogurt hadn't said one day yeah, she's yeah. like I heard you're frustrated that you're like yogurt is failing <laughs> <laughs> no I think she said devastated actually I heard you're devastated and I was like I'm not you know devastated about my yogurt right now <laughs> um and um and her trick was wrap it in a towel stick it in a warm oven until it's done for another six hours um and uh, you know, and and until it's done is like mm-hmm. not a unit of measurement. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but so much of so much of how I've learned to cook, I think, is is in that. Now, I think my story around cooking is, um, or food in general, is something that I like definitely like have to work on <laughs> some relationship to food. Don't we like all have a fraught yeah. relationship with food forever and always? Amen. Um, but I, it's still like very much like my my kitchen. My kitchen is right over here, and it is like. 
very much the heart of my home. If my kitchen is not set, like nothing in my home is set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if my pantry is not set, nothing in my home is set. That is like food is the thing I spend the most money on in my life. It's yeah. the thing that I, uh, or like kitchen stuff generally, like it's it's important to me to have pans that I care about and to have knives that I care about and have to po- have pottery that I care about because yeah. all of that is like very much part of it. Um, and it's something that I'm like willing to save up for or invest in and like g- build over now 15 years however long it's been (laughs) of making it kind of just so and so that when when people do come over um because that's so much of my love language and like how I show affection for people it is not just the food but it's like all the things around yeah like the candles are lit and it smells nice and it's cozy and the pottery is just so and also the food tastes amazing (laughs) yes yeah it's the full experience (laughs) yeah exactly yeah yeah there's something about like food and meals being almost like a character Mm -hmm. in your upbringing like I feel like I had that very much as well that experience of just like you set the table you sit down you have a meal and like something it's something I've really come to appreciate as an adult because I meet people who like didn't have that and it like really makes me realize how how much of an impact that makes yeah. yeah, yeah, completely. That was um, something growing up that was extremely important to my mom. It was yeah. very much, or both my parents, it was like, it doesn't matter how much homework there is, how much work there is, how stressed everybody is, how like, if there are meetings or whatever, like we will be home in time for dinner and we will have dinner together as a family. Yeah, yeah same, very much. <laughs> and there will likely be candles lit and the table is set and yeah. like the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. There's always something for me very like, that feels very adult about yeah. setting the table or yeah. not not like the specific act of setting the table because that was my job from when I was a really little kid <laughs> but like it's 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 very much a nesting thing it's like yeah. this is my space to hold yeah, this meal completely. and it's it's also really a um there's like a sense of uh uh not ownership what do I mean by that and not autonomy either what's this word there's a sense of authority mm. oh interesting of like like claiming your space kind of. Yeah, that's actually, it's very interesting that you say that because I live in a New York City apartment, as you know, and actually don't have a dining table anymore. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a recent thing. So when I I moved into this apartment um, just over about a year and change ago, um, I was like really adamant about having a dining table. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a be- like a table that I, like I was, a, I mean, shitty Ikea table, but it was a table that I loved when I, when I lived in Colorado, but I lived in a much, it was a Denver apartment. It was much bigger mm-hmm. than a New York City apartment. And I was like very adamant about making sure that we had a dining table. And my sister and I lived together for a long time and, and we had a dining table that whole time. And we didn't actually really ever use it as a dining table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I used it as my desk. It was also like a shitty table and I really right. hated it. But um, but when we had people over, we just like never sat at it. And it was always this like much cozier thing in the living room on yeah. the couch, like all kind of curled up together and um, and like using the coffee table um, as a table. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, as like the centerpiece kind of thing. Um, and... And so I got rid of it a few months ago and I like sold it um, 
a few months ago, which was like a huge change for me. And I was like really angsting about it actually for a while. I was like, what am I going to, how do I live in a space that doesn't have a dining table? But I have not actually missed it. And mm-hmm. I think it's because I've just found other spaces to like yeah. center around. And so, but, but I hear, but the authority kind of piece is interesting because I think there is this like, gravity around a dining table that I like don't have anymore Mm. but I also love part of my part actually oh this is an interesting space to go into but um when I while I was growing up we were we were always my family in general were like very particular about hosting like hosting is like kind of a big deal and when you have people over it should be done in exactly the right way and it should like the table should be set and the um and the candles are lit and and that's a beautiful beautiful thing and I've found that what I really love is a more casual kind mm-hmm. of way of hosting where it can be a little bit more potluck. I am not stressed about it. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, like yeah. We were always really stressed before people would come over because everything had to be done last minute and like everything had to be just so and everyone was kind of frantically running around and like something was going to boil over and somebody was kind of mad at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know? Oh, I know. Um, and when I have people over, I want them to feel, I want everything to feel chill. Not even yeah. I want them to feel, I want me to feel chill. Mm-hmm. I want to feel relaxed. I want to like open the door with a glass of wine in my hand. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and like I've spent the last 20 minutes just like, getting dressed and feeling comfortable and like putting on some makeup and like not fussing about anything else so um so yeah I didn't I didn't think talking about a dining table would uh (laughs) bring up some feels about that but yeah Mm -hmm. it it really does I love I love the like cozy chill vibe of eating on the floor (laughs) yeah well and and I mean hosting like the style of of eating is part of food as much as Mm -hmm. what you eat Mm -hmm. you know food is about often about community and care and coming together and I've got to say like I can see your coffee table in your living room behind you and like I think there's definitely authority there like it is set up (laughs) as like a cozy space (laughs) and kind of when you said that I was like oh of course you don't need a dining table because you have this space that's very clearly like cozy and homey I remember at some point after so like Yes, I grew up similarly and having yeah. like a tidy space to entertain was always just really tough for me, um, mm-hmm. especially because I had uh, postpartum depression after my first kid. And yeah. I remember at one point right after my second was born, like reading something that was about like messy hosting, like oh, not yes. not oh, yes. worrying about it, not worrying yeah. about getting everything tidy, but just having people over anyway. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's kind of like similar to what you're talking about of just yeah. like... I want to have people over and I'm not going to wait until everything's perfect yes, um, exactly. to have people over. As you were talking, the thing that it reminded me of with was um, salt, fat, acid, heat. Which yes. Bad, Samin Nasrat, my queen. That, that might have been what I read, honestly. <laughs> that might have been where I read this. I don't remember now, uh, but I, I like rewatched that Netflix show yeah. whenever I like that is my comfort watch is like Samin eating ice cream. <laughs> I'm like licking olive oil off her fingers. She is all um, of our big sister. Oh my God. She is my queen and idol so mm-hmm. much. Somebody mm-hmm. once told me that was like a truly my greatest compliment ever. They were like, you remind me of Samin when you host. And I was like, oh, I can die happy now. That oh is it. God. I'm done. Yes. <laughs> it's like the thing that I have been waiting for my entire life. Yeah. But it reminds me of her, mm-hmm. her like kitchen and even even on that show, which is like, you know, done up for Netflix and like the whole the whole situation, the whole lighting, whatever. Um, 
it's still she's like I'm barefoot in my kitchen and my mom's walking past me right now and we're just gonna make tidying together and it's a beautiful thing (laughs) yeah yeah it's so uh that show feels so homey to me like it's just like yeah it's like Mm -hmm. it's like it that was the first time I watched a food show and was like oh yeah this is like yeah this is what I'm used to. This is like yeah. representation. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> That's the word for that thing. <laughs> in so many ways. Representation yeah, yeah. in so many ways. Well, yeah. even just like, I feel like there's even a lack of representation of like cooking as a generational thing. I feel like Ooh, like a lot yeah. of food media is people being like, yeah, I didn't really learn how to cook until I was an adult mm-hmm. or like I didn't really have a relationship with food until just because of like 50s American culture and things like right. that. And seeing just representation of like generational cooking oh, yeah. was so exciting. Like I guess you, you get it with Italian food because yeah. like those are the the people who made it mm-hmm. <laughs> to representation in food. <laughs> um but there's just yeah i i love seeing food media that's starting to be about holistic nourishment and not just about the food yeah completely yeah Mm -hmm. and like i don't know like all of my all of my recipes are things that i've gotten from my mom or from mostly from my mom but occasionally from my aunts um uh that's it or like you know there's there's one this one dish that i'm thinking of in particular um that's called oh my god it's called cardichavel wow i like fully blanked on that for a second it's one of my favorites Mm -hmm. um and it is made with soured yogurt actually Mm -hmm. like leave the thing of yogurt out for a few days to like sour for a couple of days um before you make it and it's cooked with uh with turmeric and um basin flour chickpea flour mm-hmm. um and and people have like different variations of it so, so it's a very punjabi very punjabi dish mm-hmm. and um i have my mom's version of it i have my my daddy's version of it which is my my paternal grandmother um i have my bua's version of it my dad's sister and then i have my cousin's version of it on my yeah. mom's side and like another cousin's version of it on my mom's side and some people put frozen spinach in it some people put um make pakoras to go in it um and and like some people like it really sour that like you like yeah. leave the yogurt out for like four or five days before you cook it um and I love that kind of part of it. I love that you can like taste. Some people have mustard seeds in it or curry yeah. in it. Like it's very, very different. Um, and it's a, it's also like a pretty. It's like a comfort food kind of thing. So it's like it's not bland, but it's like very, it's just very soft, kind of gentle comfort food. Mm-hmm. And so you can really taste the differences in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and yeah, just like knowing the different variations and where they kind of come from and like who they've been adapted from and where everyone else's cooking lineage or generational stuff has come from is like always a really fun a fun thing to taste in like a dish that I love and also it's with rice and that's like my favorite food of all time in the world so (laughs) rice rice yes rice Rice is is the perfect food yeah yeah maybe maybe it'll win munch madness this year that's starting soon it's a it's about time it's about time like really Mm-hmm. Um, rice is like the perfect food in the world and i will br- absolutely brook no argument to that i mean i think like 70 <laughs> percent of the world agrees with that <laughs> <laughs> okay so now we'll move into the mid-roll if you're yeah. you're cool with that and then when mm-hmm. we come back we're gonna get into uh talking about chai If you're enjoying the show so far, make sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so that you never miss a new episode. 
While you're at it, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or sharing this episode with a friend. Leaving a rating and review takes very little time and it really helps us out. Also, for every rating and review we get during the month of January, we'll be donating $2 to The Depot, our local food bank here in NDG. They can turn every $1 into $3 worth of food for a family in need, so by doing the simple free act of leaving a rating and review of this show, you're functionally donating $6 worth of food to people who need it. There's literally no other way to turn zero into six, so if that math is exciting for you, go do it. You can read all about what The Depot is doing at the link in the description of this episode. And don't forget that now's your chance to submit your nominations and cast your votes to determine who will compete in Munch Madness 2023. For example, if you want to see rice win the crown this year, hit the link in the show notes and go vote for up to three of your favorite foods and one write-in nominee you think deserves to be part of this year's tournament. We'll be announcing our roster in February. Hello, folks. I'm Katie. I'm Vinny. And we host the Learn Real Good podcast. It's a comedy podcast about science. It's also a science podcast with comedy. Each episode, we interview a science grad student about their research. And we keep it casual so you don't need to be a nerd to follow along. We also share some of the latest science newts. I think you mean the latest science news. Well, people need to hear more about amphibians. I agree with that. So look us up on your favorite podcast source and learn learn real good. good. Presented by the Podcavern Network. Uh, close enough. So, Shivani, yeah. when I first approached you about this yes. episode, you said you wanted to talk about chai. I always want to talk about chai. So please, <laughs> talk about chai. <laughs> Tell me why you chose that. <laughs> that is, why did I choose it? I don't know why I chose it. I just love chai. <laughs> that's. I mean, that's um, a good reason. Yeah, I... Okay, so chai, but when I say chai, I mean specifically masala chai, which is, I mean, chai just means tea. So anyone saying chai tea, like, stop it. <laughs> and masala chai, masala is spices. So, like, masala chai is just spiced tea. And I uh, actually don't make chai all that often, but it is kind of, like, the thing that I go to to make when I'm, like, what do I do with myself? And, like, or if I haven't been cooking for a while and I... Um, I'm like feeling out of it or out of touch with it. Like that's a very easy way for me to kind of reconnect back with it. It's like, I, you know, used to work for um, a company where we used to do like a yearly cookbook and it's like the recipe that I would always contribute to the cookbook because it is like my recipe. Yeah. (laughs) And like speaking of recipes that have huge generational um, influences or cultural influences or whatever, it's, like everybody has their own variation and I'm not saying that like mine is better or worse than anyone else's or even specifically all that unique it's just the thing that I love and like the way Mm -hmm. that I love to make it um so I think it's also it's because it's it's like so simple but so adaptable Mm -hmm. um I I make like I'll make chai in the summer with more cardamom because it's a little bit more cooling um and so that is like it'll you know even though we're making super hot chai on a very hot day it will still like have this kind of cooling element to it I put a lot more ginger in it or like a lot of peppercorns in it in the winter time when I'm cold it is and it's also just like the thing that everybody loves like everybody loves chai yeah very hard to not love chai um when I was younger when I was little we used to have always like every single afternoon we always had a tea break of some kind and like Mm -hmm. often I had this neighbor across the street who would often come over and just have a cup of tea in the afternoons and it wasn't we didn't like do the whole chai kind of thing but like just a cup of tea around like 3 30 4 o'clock was always kind of like 
stop everything for a little mm-hmm. bit. You stop homework, home from school, take it, you've like taken your nap or whatever, um, and stop and have a cup of tea with the neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and it only lasts like 45 minutes or so. And then everyone goes and like does their afternoon thing. And mm-hmm. I still kind of use that as like a marker of time. Yeah. <laughs> as like a thing in my day. Um, so yeah, I also, um, the podcast that I run is called Chai with Sia because I couldn't imagine like that is what any kind of conversation feels like to me is like a cup of a cup of tea and just yeah. like, I'm literally drinking tea right now. You yeah. Know? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about Chai with Zia. Tell tell the people mm. a little bit about it. Yeah. So Chai with Zia is um, a monthly chat that I host uh, for paid subscribers of my free weekly newsletter, which is called The Copper Apothecary, and it is over on Substack. If we can, I think, drop we'll, the link. we'll have the link. <laughs> yeah, we'll have the link. <laughs> it is like a essentially an advice column. People submit questions and I answer them. Um, usually around like people's healing and nourishment practice, the the newsletter, The Copper Apothecary is about um, healing and nourishment. So mm-hmm. that is a very broad ranging topic. And chai to me is kind of this like foundation of my own healing practice or my own kind of nourishment practice when I'm like disconnected from something. It usually means I need to like make a cup of tea <laughs> as like a meditation practice, but also as like a restorative practice. And also like if I'm not feeling great, I'll put some extra ginger in there and then usually feel a little bit better. <laughs> so you mentioned a little bit about the the cooling and healing properties of yeah. the different spices you use. Kind of a two-part question. Yeah. First, would you be willing to share like what your yeah. basic masala roster is? Oh, yes, absolutely. And then if you are uh, if you wanted to share a little bit about the sort of cooling heating properties and give people just like a basic uh yeah. overview of what yeah. that means, uh, that would be great. Yeah, definitely. So my basic recipe for chai is um, I'll just do my whole recipe because like the process of it is, I think, also pretty important and part of it. Um, When I'm doing like a full pot of masala chai, it is um, uh, for like, okay, let's say for one person, about um, three quarters of a cup of water. And I'll do my in a pot, I'll do my whole spices in there. So sliced ginger. Um, I do a couple of cloves of crushed, couple of cloves of crust crushed cardamom. Wow, that is more of a tongue twister than I thought it was going to be. Um, I'll do like six, seven um, peppercorns. Um, Sometimes if I have it, I'll add fennel uh, as like, that's like more of a summer kind of thing also, because that's also kind of cooling. Um, And and I'll kind of tweak it sometimes. Usually I'll do green cardamom. Occasionally I'll do black cardamom. Sometimes I'll do cloves. Sometimes I'll do a stick of cinnamon. But Mm -hmm. the, the core of it is usually... Sliced a lot of sliced ginger, um, like a good thumb's worth, mm-hmm. and uh, a few green cardamom cloves, and a bunch of peppercorns. Um, boil all of that until it's like really just like simmering. I usually like to cover it so that the steam all traps and it all kind of stays, and anything aromatic does not escape. Um, I'll add like half a cup of milk, milk of your choice. I really like whole milk because I like how creamy mm-hmm. it is in that. Um, let that come to a boil again. Add your tea uh, tea bags. Um, I'll do one or two for, for one person serving um, or loose leaf tea if you'd prefer loose leaf black tea. Um, Assam or Darjeeling tea is like a really good one. I like, a, I like an Assam a little bit better because it's a little bit stronger. I can like yeah, hold up. It's really hearty. A little bit more, yeah. Um, and then the trick is to... Uh, 
let it come to a boil and then you like use a ladle to kind of cool it down um, and then and like get it a little bit frothy and then you come, let it come to a boil again, turn it off, steep it for a couple of minutes um, and then strain it and serve mm-hmm. it over whatever sweetener you want. Um, I'll sometimes do like jaggery actually just mixed into the pot, let it all yeah. kind of boil and simmer together. So those are, that's my, that's my recipe. That's my like spice thing of choice <laughs> I, I know what I'm gonna do after this recording because <laughs> I'm like I'm like foaming at the mouth I'm like drooling <laughs> for part two for like what spices have what different kinds of properties um so I I like disclaimers that I'm not an Ayurvedic scholar I'm not like an Ayurvedic practitioner by any means um I've like dabbled in it kind of here and there but I definitely kind of come into it more from just like okay when people say when people say spices have different properties or different foods mm-hmm. have different properties it usually comes from ayurvedic medicine mm-hmm. in this um much more traditional like form of or system of medicine or system of healing um i didn't learn it like that i learned it like my mom said oh you're cold have some ginger right yeah <laughs> we're like oh it's really hot like we're gonna put cucumber in the yogurt today mm-hmm. um so yeah so I don't I don't really think about it as like a medicine practice so much yeah. as I do just like oh it's cold I should add some ginger to my tea or like it's you know 90 degrees in July like I'm, I'm gonna put some black salt and cucumber in my in my yogurt today um or like uh, my one of my aunts um, when we were in India, like we had a bunch of coconut water because we weren't like feeling super well. But mm-hmm. you do that, you'd like drink it earlier in the day because towards the end of the day it gets too cold. <laughs> right. <laughs> coconut water is a cooling thing. Um, so a lot of that like cooling and healing is actually pr- or heating rather is pretty intuitive to me. And mm-hmm. I think that when I talk about it, it's usually pretty intuitive to other people also. Yeah. Um, like they're they're kind of the scent like mint is a cooling thing like when you drink when you drink a mint like iced mint tea in the summertime it like cools you down when you drink uh, when you like eat something with jalapenos in it you sweat yeah (laughs) you know um um, so yeah so I think about it like that so um cardamom I think is typically considered a cooling spice green cardamom in particular Mm -hmm. fennel is also um considered cooling there's different spices that are also different foods that are like when it's raw versus when it's cooked has have like different properties which mm-hmm. i never can keep track of honestly um ginger is kind of the easy one that i go yeah. to as like something that's that's he- heating and in so much of like traditional medicine systems a lot of it is like balancing energies or feelings or like not feelings in terms of emotion but like feelings as in like body states it's like a homeostasis thing honestly it's like what well like we we talk about homeostasis and biology like what is it that that coming back to a form of balance or a state of balance feels like and looks like and sometimes that is i have a headache and i need to take tylenol or sometimes that's um (laughs) i have a migraine and actually what's going to help right now is like drinking soda which is something my doctor told me yeah (laughs) um or taking tylenol with caffeine in it um and sometimes it is i have a headache i'm gonna put an ice pack on my head and like have some lavender (laughs) like that is the thing that's like relaxing also and none of those things are inherently like wrong or okay by themselves or or like you know you good to use with to the exclusion of other things I think Mm -hmm. they all kind of work really well together um but yeah I think about I think about spices and their properties or foods and their properties as like part of this kind of larger thing Mm -hmm. I love what you said about it being intuitive to people because yeah like you know we talk about comfort food and like 
no matter what somebody's background or culture is, like comfort food is a concept everybody understands. Yeah, exactly. Like they won't have the same comfort food, but right. like every everybody understands that comfort food is something like hearty, nourishing, frequently warm. Exactly. And like probably not too aggressive, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like gentle on your body, like yeah. because you are whatever, you're having a hard time digesting things or you want something soft and starchy. Like yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and I love like what I was thinking about when you were talking about cooling foods is that Armenia has a dish mm-hmm. called jajuk, which is mm-hmm. basically yeah. like raita, which is it's, yeah. it's cucumber, yogurt and mint. Yeah. Uh, And Armenia is hot and arid. Um, (laughs) And so like there's and like that's something there's like some version of like yogurt, cucumber and mint like Mm -hmm. throughout that entire belt of of the European Asian continent. Like everybody has it. Yeah. Um, European and Asian continent. They are two distinct continents. I just got that is also a I just kind of ran over that but oh yeah yeah that's that's a good point that's a good point thank you that's a side note for another podcast oh we go into those side notes <laughs> um but you talked about uh uh chai and masala chai specifically mm-hmm. as being part of your healing uh practice and I've touched yeah. on you being a healer and you've talked about your <laughs> newsletter um yes. but I would love it if you'd be willing to share a little bit about that um yeah. experience journey whatever you want to oh my gosh um call in. <laughs> <laughs> my like life's work I guess <laughs> yeah tell me about your life's work as it pertains to chai um, Oh my god, my life's work as it pertains to Chai. What a, <laughs> what a sentence. <laughs> you know, just quickly. <laughs> just a basic overview. Oh my goodness. I like I don't really know where to start because mm-hmm. I I have never really called myself a healer, which is interesting because everybody I know calls me or not everybody I know, but a lot of people in my life have called me that. Mm-hmm. Um and it is very much like central to my work. I think it um it's a word that can be really fraught for people. I know mm-hmm. I, I have some folks in in um, various other like communities or spaces that I'm in um, who really don't like that word okay. <laughs> and like have a lot of fraught feelings around like heal as a verb or healer as a as a noun for a person or like healing as a process. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a word that I really love because. I mean, some etymology stuff, some just like, it's just a word that I've always kind of gravitated towards. And it's one that I don't really question anymore. It's like mm-hmm. one that I've just kind of accepted as like, this is something that is important to me and I'm I'm good with that. So I, okay, I guess like the life's work version of this is um, when I was little, like even four or five, six years old, like desperately wanted to be a doctor. All I ever wanted to be growing up, all, all like anytime someone would be like, what did you want to be when you grow up? I only ever wanted to be a doctor mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I and I I now in retrospect I think it's because that's like the only word that I knew for like being involved in some kind of medical or wellness adjacent mm-hmm. or like health adjacent space um when I uh in this I, I mentioned my childhood home <laughs> earlier in that in in that that house that backyard and um, we had this like beautiful little vegetable garden tiny little plot it was like a kidney shaped plot actually um and my I have this like very vivid memory of my grandmother sitting out there um 
and we I think it was like there before we moved into this this house actually and like whoever lived in it before had had a vegetable garden there and I remember like picking herbs and seeds and like mixing them into little concoctions for my dolls um when I was in I think I was seven or eight years old I got really obsessed with herbal medicine I, I don't know how I learned I like learned about this yeah <laughs> I, I also did at the same age of course go figure of course we did um <laughs> and also made like little solves and things in the backyard completely completely. like so many solves in the backyard so many little medicine things and I remember um dragging my mom and my sister to our local library it wasn't even our local library actually it was like a town over because that was the only library that like had this like like, herbal medicine textbook that I wanted to check out and I remember like sitting on the floor of the the basement of this library in the stacks and hauling out these books that were like you know half the size of me yeah (laughs) and like just absolutely obsessed um with with learning about food and medicine like that was that was it even at that age um even if I didn't have like I didn't have obviously any of the words for it at the time um so I have kind of always always been really obsessed with that and then um I think the other kind of part of that story so I I like you know went on to school I was obsessed with biology I went to when I I was a neuroscience major in college um I was pre-med in college and I got out and was I like took orgo the summer after I graduated organic chemistry the summer after I graduated um from college and it was the most miserable summer of my life I absolutely do not recommend that experience (laughs) um and I was then applying to medical school um, while working at a hospital. And the like parallel story to all of this is also that um, I am disabled. I, I have also have had a couple chronic illnesses, um, but I, I didn't learn that language. I've been disabled since I was born, essentially, with a genetic thing. Um, I was diagnosed when I was seven years old. So it like kind of makes sense that like <laughs> this was happening in parallel. Um, I remember very vividly sitting in um, this hospital room uh, meeting the genetic counselor, actually. And I remember she like had this little laminated flip chart uh, back in the 90s. (laughs) Those like laminated flip charts with like um, the dry erase markers you could write all over showing me chromosomes and like how they worked and how like where genes kind of were. So I was like obsessed kind of from a very early age. Mm -hmm. Um, I yeah, I just like was very interested in like what makes bodies do the things that they do (laughs) like not do the things that they do sometimes so anyway so that's kind of like the parallel story to all of this I didn't find language around being disabled until I was in my 20s so I like went through my whole life kind of knowing that I had something having a bunch of surgeries when I was a kid but um but not really having having language for that and so I get out I was like in my early 20s um had was working in a hospital um in graduate medical education I was applying to medical school I got some very major surgeries and was on medical leave for three months. And then I was also a caretaker for um, a family member who also had a surgery. And so I was like interacting with the medical system in absolutely every possible way. <laughs> like a patient, a caretaker, um, a, a staff member or an admin person, mm-hmm. um, as well as through like going through this medical school application process myself. And I, um, on medical leave, had this like kind of breakdown, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> where it was like, I hate everything about this. Like, what am I doing with my life? Um, and so I ended up um, finding public health at that point and um, 
like sent in an application, frankly, on a whim mm-hmm. and got in and was like, I guess I'm going to do this now. And so I um, went and got a degree in public health and it changed my life. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was I actually I sent an application to midwifery school and a, an application to public health school. And I was like, we're just going to see what yeah. happens. <laughs> And I got rejected from midwifery school and I got into public health school. So that is how my life ended up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I That was kind of the first the first time I had language around uh, and like a very strong framework around things like social determinants of health or health equity. Um, and I was in parallel. Also, I like I trained as a birth and abortion doula. I got introduced to reproductive justice then. Um, I was doing all this like exploration around the language around being disabled and what that meant. And that brought me to disability justice as a framework. Also, um, there was a lot in public health around like health as a human right and like Mm -hmm. adding a human rights framework to this, which is also very much how reproductive justice views the world is like reproductive justice as a human right. And um, yeah, that all changed my life. (laughs) That all like very much set me up for this like much more expansive view of what it meant to engage with medicine and health and well-being and like wellness as very very broad um very broad understandings that like medicine is like this very huge important core component of it but equally as important are systems of power and oppression if not more so (laughs) if absolutely more so in fact um and and considering health as a human right means that you talk about things like racism or ableism um and how those very systematic um patterns of oppression, systems of oppression actually lead so much more to health outcomes than anything else. Mm-hmm. How that all relates to Chai. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think how that all relates to Chai for me is that um, I think I what I found and what I really hated about my whole experience and that like those are those early 20 years <laughs> mm-hmm. was just how disempowering that whole process can be, both in terms of like Like I was, you know, I had already been diagnosed, but in terms of actually accessing care, in terms of working with my surgeons, in terms of actually getting surgeries and and being a caretaker, then seeing how my family member was treated in that space. And I have learned very intensely how to navigate those spaces. And I think since I was working in graduate medical education and also applying to medical school at the time, I was also seeing how that process, like I was working with medical students, residents, attendings, kind of at Mm -hmm. every single stage of that like 15 or so year process of what it takes to, to go in, to become a clinician. Yeah. Um, I was watching very closely, like how that is its own system that really harms people and that really traumatizes the people who are, who go, who often, it often (laughs) traumatizes the clinicians that go through it. Um, And that is the thing that then like really dehumanizes both clinicians and patients um, Mm and people interacting with the medical system. And so, so for me, part of my own practices and the way that I teach um, around recovery or health or well-being or or any of this is both the individual, both the like growing agency that like you have choice <laughs> yeah. to name your your health issues or your like your concepts of well-being and the ways that you want to. You have agency to find things that work for you when it's like if it's like ginger in your chicken soup. <laughs> yeah. And or if it's like, you know, um, psychiatric medication, like those are all choices that you have and you agency that you have in terms of in terms of choosing that. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, um, 
that a huge part of that is like dealing with the systems of oppression that that guide those choices that we can like focus on the individual choice and building agency and also understand that they're always within this broader concept and broader landscape in the same way that like I could talk about the spice industry and how like the spice trade has like changed how we view chai or you know that like the the history of colonization that led to tea and that entire entire pattern of colonization um so that's tea being British right exactly exactly exactly. um yeah yeah yeah, I, that's my very long answer. <laughs> I I want to dig in a little bit um, yeah. to what you said about, you know, whether it's uh, psychiatric medication or ginger in your chicken soup. And mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about, quote unquote, or not quote unquote, holistic yeah. medicine. Oh, and. God. And wellness culture. Yeah. And I'm, I did warn you that this was coming. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, because I just had this episode with Mal Skinner a couple of episodes ago mm-hmm. where we talked about chronic illness and food and yeah. sort of the the weirdnesses of seeing wellness culture as somebody yeah. with chronic illness. But especially, I, I just especially want to hear from you because you are both like, I think very much a holistic practitioner of what you do, but also because you are, you know, from one of the places that wellness culture lifts (laughs) from the most. And like, I think also often when people hear Ayurvedic, they think of like white women going on yoga retreats. Yeah, totally. Um, And I, I just like, if you could talk a little bit about holistic wellness or holistic. Yeah self-care and what that can look like and what that like doesn't yeah look like (laughs) Um, in your own personal (laughs) view yeah I mean I think that's why I'm like being so careful about how Mm -hmm. I talk about this and like I the reason that I talk about um building agency and choice around our 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 definitions of health and wellness or our practices of health and wellness um or illness for that matter Mm -hmm. um I I'm I'm very cautious yeah. <laughs> for exactly this reason because I think the like quote unquote wellness industry it's not mm-hmm. it is a real thing that ex- I mean thing that exists because it is like a multi billion dollar industry mm-hmm. um, is really damaging in a lot of ways um, and there's like nuggets of truth in it as there are nuggets of truth in anything there's like a ton of a ton of nuance around all of these conversations so I'm I'm very mindful of that and very um, I try to be very nuanced yeah. in how I talk about it. <laughs> Um, I think that it, like it's impossible to talk about the wellness industry without talking about capitalism. So there's like that <laughs> that entire piece of like how wellness is commodified um, under capitalism and how so much of it is just about like making more productive individuals under capitalism. Um, I think that's that's like one very long and deep component <laughs> that we could talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also this. Uh, piece around white supremacy and colonialism that we could talk about that is like about how um, how traditions are co-opted and then have like have their culture stripped away from them Um, so whether it's Ayurveda whether it's yoga whether it's indigenous practices whether it's traditional Chinese medicine whether it's um, traditionally black uh, traditions in um, or like black uh, practices African-American practices in the United States specifically Mm -hmm. um, 
like I mean there's a huge there's a, a huge kind of component of that that is like the history of granny midwives in the yeah. United States and how um, they were systematically undermined and taken and like had power stripped away from them by um, entities like the American Medical Association like that mm-hmm. is there are some very intense and or like the, how the the history of of obstetrics and gynecology was um was in part created by um a white physician um practicing on enslaved black women mm-hmm. um and unanesthetized enslaved black women and like that is a, a horrific history that the industry as a whole industry both meeting the the wellness industry as well as like the medical industrial complex (laughs) Um, and like the history of medicine uh, in the western world has not really grappled with in nearly the way that it needs to so (laughs) so like what that i guess what that translates to or what what i kind of um, think about with that. So I went through a yoga immersion when I lived in Colorado called the Satya Yoga Cooperative, which is phenomenal. Highly recommend. Happy to share links um, to that as well. That is um, the, I believe, first POC owned and operated um, yoga cooperative in the United States, mm-hmm. um, people of color owned. And so that um, that cooperative teaches, that's Lakshmi Nair is my is my teacher there. Um, and she founded this a number of years ago um, as to like teach yoga as a tool for social justice, essentially, mm-hmm. that like yoga at its roots is this is this tool for social justice, both because it um, it helps us as individuals and specifically as folks of color um like reckon with or recover from the impact that racism has on our physical bodies which it has a huge impact on our physical bodies racism and other isms um and also at like that at its root um the like physical practice of yoga asanas is just one branch of many 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 traditions Mm -hmm. around yoga so part of yoga is also ayurveda it's also how you cook it's how you eat there's so much around food excuse me and um in the like full kind of practice of yoga there's um breathing practices meditation practices um there's there's i mean there's just so much more to it that it's not just you know the white woman in leggings on a very expensive yoga mat. <laughs> um, it is, it's much, much, much more extensive than that. And, um, and part of that space was also to like, to elevate the, the traditions of it, but like in a very um, expansively people of color community. Like I, I use that, that, that word very intentionally that it was not just a South Asian practice that it is um, a it specifically in that cooperative, we we teach it and um, practice it as like a discipline across um, across all brown and black and indigenous folks. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, anyway, what was your original question? <laughs> uh, we're, the wellness industry, like I just went on a big soapbox there. <laughs> no, it's great because I, I asked you to talk about holistic health and I think that that yeah. absolutely answers or addresses the question obviously there's yeah I think it's really interesting like as you were talking I was thinking about how there's sort of this false dichotomy in the discourse mm-hmm. between um the medical industrial complex and the billion dollar wellness industry yeah and practices of healing or practices of care that were distinct from the medical Mm -hmm. industrial complex outside Mm -hmm. of the medical industrial complex Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, had to get dressed up into something that works under capitalism mm-hmm. and kind of all of us got screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, except for the people yeah. making billions off the wellness industry. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and like, and I think there's also, I mean, the, wh- the way that I see them too is like both of the the complex parts of them, like the wellness industry as well as the medical industrial complex, like they are kind of two sides of the same coin yeah. in many ways. And what they do is devalue the good things that are available in both. Like but the holistic holistic practices are a beautiful thing. When you have mm-hmm. choice and agency over how you interact with them, when you are, you know, learning from your own histories and your own ancestries and your own cultures, or even like learning from other cultures, but like doing so in a way that's respectful. And similarly, like I don't for, forever once <laughs> want to say, um, that medicine is a bad thing to take or that yeah. med- like that going into clinical care is a, is necessarily a bad thing like that is a be- antibiotics are an incredible thing yes. antibiotics are magical yeah. <laughs> like penicillin oh my god <laughs> um that's it's fantastic um uh, like i am a person who's had plenty of surgeries who's like been under anesthesia m- many times i just recently was taking care of somebody in the icu and like to see what people can do and like the, mm-hmm. the advanced the scientific advances that that western medicine has made are incredible are absolutely yeah. phenomenal um the things that we that we have access to and the way that we can treat those things is incredible the way um and that is not sufficient right and that there's like huge problems that come along with that and the way that system is set up is still under a systems of white supremacy and capitalism and like those are deeply problematic things um as like a public health person too i mean so much of what we talk about is um is just in like that end stage hospital room of like what what happens when you go to a hospital or go to a clinic or or we talk about like what happens when you get to take a yoga class but like my entire discipline and the majority of my work is like do you actually have paid leave do you have a livable wage do you have um work that is dignified and or universal universal basic income are you able to live in a place that is safe and um and clean for you is are you able to access the things that you need are you able to just like in the reproductive justice model choose to have children or not to have children and to parent those children in the ways that you want to um in the disability justice practices so much of that is like disability is actually the more permanent state and ability is the temporary state so like are we do you live in a place that has like a you know walkable or movable um sidewalks or city like cities or park spaces or green spaces do you live in a place with sidewalk cutouts um if you're a wheelchair user do you have access to like closed captioning on things like those are there so many other things that inform our health um and to me that is like that that's my has been my professional focus for the last decade or so yeah. is is really focusing on um, those structural determinants. Um, do you live in a place that like you experience bias and discrimination on a daily basis, whether it's explicit or implicit? Like th- those questions to me um, are much more foundational to to our health than um, than what happens in the in the clinic room or what happens mm-hmm. in the yoga studio. Like those are important questions too, yes. And like before we get there, we should be spending a lot more time on like, do you have clean water and yeah. good food? Yeah, because it's very hard to make chai if you don't have clean water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, we brought it back full circle. <laughs> um, Shivani, thank you so much. I We could talk for another hour, um, yeah. <laughs> but I have to let you go. We'll just have to have you back again sometime. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited about this little mini series that I'm doing on on like food and illness and wellness. Uh, mm. And I'm really, really glad to have you here.
It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I know you have several projects and we've plugged your newsletter, (laughs) uh, but tell people what they need to know about. What do you have coming up? Um, yeah, well, if you want to find me, first of all, you can find kind of everything on my website, which is www.shivani.co. Um, I'm also on Instagram at ShivaniMB if you want to kind of keep up with stuff there. Um, you can subscribe to my free weekly newsletter um, on healing and nourishment, which is the Copper Apothecary. Um, Highly recommend. Support my work and then listen to Chai with Zia, which is my monthly chat for paid subscribers of the newsletter. Um, I will hopefully be announcing a couple of classes soon. So um, sign up for the newsletter if you want to be the first to hear about that. Um, and otherwise, I am a, an equity coach. So I offer like coaching on on diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, I offer uh, both kind of one-on-one coaching as well as consultation for um, larger entities and companies and things like that for um, diversity, equity, inclusion. So uh, as well as for like health equity and public health. So things like that. So always happy to chat and um, it's been such a thrill and I'm really glad you invited me. So thank you. (laughs) And uh, there are links for all of the things Shivani mentioned in our show notes if you want to find her, uh, which I highly recommend. Thanks so much for listening to No Bad Food. Want to join the conversation? Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at NoBadFoodPod. And individually, I'm on Instagram at TeverBear. And Tom is on Twitter and Instagram at TomZalatni. If you like this episode and want to help us make the show even better, head to patreon.com slash nobadfoodpod and donate. For as little as $1 a month, you'll be joining the ranks of fine folks like Gab, Thomas, Anne, Erica, Carlea, Andrew, Chantal, David, Mallory, and Sarah. Our patrons get access to all kinds of awesome perks, including the ability to request topics for episodes of the show. If that's exciting for you, head to patreon.com slash nobadfoodpod and make it happen. We also have merch. You can hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get all kinds of great stuff from our friends over at Podcavern. And of course, you can support us for free by leaving a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice and by sharing this with a friend. And I mean, like after listening to Shivani talk, don't you want to share it with all your friends? Because I do. Our theme music is by Zach T.T. Ingalls, and our cover art is by David Everything is Capitalism Flam. You can find links for both of them in the description of this episode. And last but not least, this show was produced by me, Tefer Ajemian, and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Podcavern Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at www.podcavern.com. Everything is capitalism is the takeaway from today. <laughs> Just takes a little time, it takes a little time, it takes a little time with me. I hope you don't mind, we'll take it slow this time. No Bad Food is a proud member of the Podcavern Network. For more great shows like this one, head to podcavern.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Tong. I'm Sam. And I'm Laura. And we are... Disney Dummies! Look, we know there are Disney super fans out there, but even the superest of fans could still be Disney dummies. That's why the three of us are on a quest to watch every single animated theatrical release in chronological order. From Snow White all the way to whatever's out right now. We dive into each movie in detail, talking about fun facts, 
talking about the animation, hit you with some hot takes, our favorite reviews on the internet. We even talk about who fucks. I still can't believe that's an actual segment. So join us every second Wednesday for another episode of Disney Dummies. And Pixar Pals when we finally catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Brought to you by the fairy tale whimsical depths of the Podcavern.